Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I've traveled a lot, especially with my parents living on the other side of the country, and I can't tell you how important it is to have the right bags. I've gotten my bags packed, and they've had holes in them. I've tried the hard ones, and the hard shell ones have been cracked. So it really is important to travel with the right luggage. We are teaming up DB exclusively to offer our listeners 10% off your net purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB is time to move on, time to get going. So if you look below, we're going to have the link in the description. Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I'm so happy to have you here. Um, Like always, I'm always surprised that I'm still doing this. Um, I look out and I'm so shocked to see new listeners from around the world. I'm so happy to see Germany uh, catching up and uh, continuing to listen. Um, It always shocks me when I see other countries engaging and continuing to listen. Thank you, Danka. I'm so appreciative. I actually speak a little German, so guys, I'm going to brush up on my German and um, I'm going to uh, give you guys a special shout out. So give me like a second. Like I said, I'm going to brush up on my German so I don't embarrass myself or insult anybody. Um, That being said, um, I had promised you to tell you a little bit about my the story of my mayor and Giselle Correa. What I did was I put that in a video because I am starting a separate YouTube channel called Dumber Than a Suck of Hair. I have gone ahead and recorded that video and I'm in the process of editing it. So um, I'm going to have the link to the YouTube video down below so you guys can watch that see all this black that's yet to crack up in full hd um we're gonna have the dumb um youtube stories there i will put the audios on the patreon page so if you want to you prefer to just listen to the audio and not watch the video you can do that on the patreon um 
so that story will be there i'm also a couple times a week going to put real quick just little short true crime uh clips uh throughout the week so probably about twice a week i'll put very short true crime clips over there on the youtube channel as well and then maybe you know once a week i may uh delve into stuff that i find to be stupid that may not be true crime related a little bit more conversational over there so um i will put the link for that as well um over there um there's going to be a little bit more merch added to the merchandise store as well so those things will be in the link down below um like i said i just really appreciate you guys and i love doing what i do and being able to engage with you um so please um like i say um on the patreon if you guys want to request crimes i really really appreciate when you guys do that so that i can find more things that i may never would have heard of before so please especially internationally please do that um you can do that through the patreon um there's a special here in there where you would get a t-shirt and the ability to request a crime i will put a cap on the amount of people who can do that because it would only be i can only would be able to fulfill so many requests but um if you want to do that on a regular basis you can do that over on the patreon and you would be able to do that for both the youtube channel and the regular uh, psycho crime podcast so with that being said uh this week we are going to get into the story of bell guinness bell guinness was a female serial killer now a lot of people have always believed that Aileen Wuornos is the first female serial killer. She is far from the first. A lot of people don't necessarily believe she is a serial killer because there's a very specific set of circumstances that have to come together for someone to be categorized as a serial killer. Um, because um, she did the first, her killing started as trick rolls. Some people don't consider all of her kills to be considered part of the killing pattern um because they were like i said part of what they call trick roles or she killed them as part of um the prostitution so it is divided some people don't consider a serial a true serial killer and some people do either way she was never ever the first contact himes came before her and then most notorious of all is bell guinness um because of the popularly held myth that serial killers are predominantly men um i mean it's understandable that people think this um as late as 1998 highly regarded former fbi profiler said there just aren't any female serial killers in addition news and media perpetuate the stereotype that serial offenders are all men and that women do not engage in horrible acts of violence and murder on, on the contrary female serial killers they do exist but their motivations differ significantly from men in particular sex is generally much further down on the list of motivations for female serial killers in fact sexual or sadistic motives are extremely rare among female serial killers psychopathic traits and histories of childhood abuse are often found among the very few female serial killers who have sexual or sadistic motives Unlike male serial killers who are frequently driven by sexual lust, female serial killers tend to take a much more pragmatic approach to their killings. Female serial killers are much more likely than males to kill for profit or revenge, and therefore they are more likely to fall into a category of hedonist or comfort or game killers than any other type. Unlike male serial killers who usually target unknown victims, 
Females tend to kill men who are emotionally and physically closest to them, particularly husbands and lovers. They generally kill to improve their lifestyle. However, victims of female serial killers are not confined to just male husbands or lovers. An important psychological study of 86 female serial killers in the U.S. found that their victims can also include children and the elderly. The news and entertainment media have popularized the female comfort gang killer in the cultural image of the Black Widow. The Black Widow serial killer is a woman who murders three or more husbands or lovers for financial or material gain over the course of her career. The Black Widow killer was featured in the 1944 dark comedy Arsenic and Old Lace starring Cary Grant. This highly popular film tells the fictional tale of two sisters who murder elderly gentlemen by serving them elderberry wine laced with arsenic. Although they, com they compromise less than 15% of serial killers, females are very effective in their work and they typically use quieter and less messy methods to kill than their male counterparts. The methods they use for murder are far more covert or low profile, such as murder by poisoning, which was the preferred choice or modus operandi of female serial killers in the aforementioned research study. Other methods of murder that were also identified in the study of female serial killers include shooting, stabbing, suffocation, and drowning. Female comfort gang killers are frequently involved in theft, fraud, or embezzlement prior to becoming serial killers due to their interest in material things. Although most female serial killers murder for money or other profits, some do it for attention and sympathy that they receive following the death of a loved one. It is not uncommon for female comfort gang killers to be employed as caretakers in nursing homes for the elderly. Female serial killers generally operate in a specific place that they know well, such as their home or a healthcare facility where they are employed. They rarely go trolling for victims out in the open, as male serial killers often do, but rather find them their victims in their family or workplace. Dorothea Puente, the Sacramento boarding house landlady who robbed and murdered her elderly guests, was the prototypical female comfort or gang killer. Occasionally, a female serial killer will become involved in a male serial with a male serial killer as part of a team. In such instances, the female will be more submissive of the two and help select victims in order to please the dominant partner. The husband and wife serial killing of Gerald, Gerald and Charlene Gilago provides an example of this rare affiliation. Between 1978 and 1980, the Galagos killed a total of 10 victims, mostly female teenagers, with whom they kept as sex slaves prior to murdering them. The victims were selected primarily for the lurid sexual gratification of Gerald, who was the dominant partner. A notable exception to the typical characteristics of female serial killers was the notorious highway prostitute Eileen Warnos, who I mentioned earlier who killed outdoors instead of at home, and who used a gun instead of poison, killed strangers instead of friends or family, and killed for personal gratification and vengeance. It's many's belief that Warnos rose to infamy primarily because she was atypical of female killers, and that she killed like a man. The lack of public awareness of female serial killers prior to Warnos was due to the virtual absence of female killers in the news and media. Until Warnos, the mass media always depicted a serial perpetrator as a deranged man due to the erroneous and paternalistic societal notion that women could, weren't capable of committing such heinous crimes. 
Unlike the obscure and rarely discussed Black Widow killers throughout history, Wernos became a pop culture icon because she defied stereotypes and did not kill demurely, as societal norms dictated that women should. I didn't even... Since how is there a societal... I need some... I have always needed people to explain to me. What is a demure killing? A killing is a killing. There's nothing demure about killing people. And how is there a societal norm about how women should kill people? Like... There's no societal, more. is there a handbook out there somewhere that's like, how ladies should kill, how to be demure amongst your kill. Have you now, apparently these people have never played video games with chicks because they butcher some people in some video games. And obviously you've never played a tabletop game with a chick because I have really, really, really jacked some people up in some tabletop games. So this demurely killing people as societal norms as a woman thing mm -mm, that's not a thing that is absolutely not a thing interesting interestingly the most prolific serial killer in all of history may have been female see and this is actually alleged uh, many people think that this is just a myth and it's not actually true hungarian countess elizabeth Bath bathory who was born on August 17, 1560. Elizabeth was a countess from the Bathory family in Hungary. Following her husband's death, the countess and four collaborators started allegedly tortured, sexually assaulted, and killed hundreds of girls and young women. Incredibly, Elizabeth was never tried or convicted of any crimes. Nevertheless, to pacify the public in 1610, the countess was placed under house arrest in the castle where she remained bricked in a set of rooms until her death four years later in 1614. And why I say this is rumored is because people claim that she killed all those girls and bathed in their blood in order to keep herself looking young and radiant. So that's why I say it probably is just a myth. Um, so Brunhild Poldesater Storseth was born in Selbu, Norway on November 11th, 1859 to Paul Inbert Storseth. She was the youngest of eight children. She was confirmed at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in 1874. At the age of 14, she began working for neighboring farms by milking and herding cattle to save enough money for passage to New York. She moved to the United States in 1881. When she was processed by immigration at Castle Gardens, she changed her name to Belle and traveled to Chicago to join her sister Nellie, who had immigrated several years earlier. In Chicago, while living with her sister and brother-in-law, she worked as a domestic servant, then got a job at a butcher shop cutting up animal carcasses until her first marriage in 1884. That's not a good look. We already saw a woman who worked at a butchery, and that turned out bad for all the men involved. Belle Guinness married Mad Sorensen in 1884. Their store and home mysteriously burned down. The couple claimed the insurance money for both. Two babies in their home died from inflammation of the large intestine, which can result from poisoning. Belle had insured both the children and collected a large insurance check after each death. Neighbors gossiped about the babies since Belle never really appeared to be pregnant. Sorensen had purchased two life insurance policies. On July 30, 1890, the policies were active at the same time, as one would expire that day and the other would begin. Sorison died of cerebral hemorrhage on the day the policies overlapped, the one day they would overlap. That's kind of insane. Guinness explained that she had come home with a headache and she, that he had come home with a headache. She provided him with quinine powder, which is like aspirin powder, for the pain. 
She later checked on him and he was dead. Though her husband's family demanded an inquiry, no charges were ever filed. Guinness collected the money from both the expiring life insurance policy and the one that went into effect that same day, making a total of $5,000, which back then was a lot of money. With the insurance money, she moved to Laporte, Indiana and bought a pig farm. Belle married Peter Guinness on April 1st, 1902. The following week, while Peter was out of the house, his, his infant daughter died of unknown causes in Belle's care. Look, maybe it's just me, but once the third kid dies, mm -mm, you should not be leaving children alone with this woman. Peter died eight months later due to a skull injury. Gee, you think? Belle explained that Peter reached for something on a high shelf and a meat grinder fell on him. Really? That's the best you got? He reached to a high shelf and a meat grinder fell on his head. The district coroner convened a coroner's jury suspecting murder, but nothing came of the case. Belle collected another three grand. Damn. Now, y'all have to remember that back then, um, they didn't have a lot of restrictions on insurance like they do now in the United States. It's um, a lot more difficult to collect on insurance. So, like, in the United States, if you had had these back-to-back-to-back -back -back insurance policies now, just, like, having a second husband and having a third child die would have set up massive red... Just the husband, let alone... Well, just the kid, not even the husband yet, would have set off massive red flags. Now, back then, it didn't. So, it wasn't until, like, the mid, I want to say, 20th century that the United States got regulations and they got like a system going to where, you know, multiple insurance payoffs set out and like red flags and stuff. So back then, no, like it wouldn't, nobody would have thought twice because they didn't really have anything in place for stuff like this. So <clears throat> the, in 1901, Guinness purchased a house on McClung Road. It has been reported that both the boat and carriage houses burned to the ground shortly after she acquired the property. As she was preparing to move from Chicago to Laporte, she became reacquainted with recent widower Peter Guinness, also Norwegian born. Before we get into the story of how she met Peter and how all of that came to be, let me tell you a little bit about this episode's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off their next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on and time to get going. She was married to a man by the name of she was married to Guinness in Laporte on April 1st, 1902. Just one week after the ceremony is when Peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes. While alone in the house with Belle. In December of 1902, 
Peter tragically died when he was hit in the head with a meat grinder. Super, super suspicious, like I said. According to Bell, he was reaching for slippers. Who puts their slippers on a high shelf? That makes no sense. Who puts their slippers next to the kitchen stove, next to a high shelf above the kitchen stove? Then he was scalded with brine, and that's why the meat grinder fell off the shelf and hit him in the head. That makes zero sense. None at all. A year later, Peter's brother, Goost, took Peter's older daughter, Swanhilda, to Wisconsin. She's the only child who has ever survived living with Bell Guinness. Well, good for that family for rescuing that poor girl. Her husband's death netted Guinness another three grand, as I said. Local people refuse to believe that her husband would ever be so clumsy, right? I refuse to believe anybody would put their slippers on the high shelf. He had run a hog farm on the property and was known to be an experienced butcher. The district coroner reviewed the case and unequivocally announced that he had been murdered. He convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. Meanwhile, Jenny Olson, then 14, was overheard confessing to a classmate. My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. But don't tell anybody. Jenny was brought before the coroner's jury but denied having ever made the remark. Guinness, meanwhile, convinced the coroner that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. She did not mention that she was also pregnant, which would have inspired sympathy. But in May 1903, a baby boy, Philip, joined the family. In late 1906, Bell told neighbors that her foster daughter, Jenny Olson, had gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. Some neighbors were informed that it was a finishing school for young ladies. In fact, Jenny's body would later be found buried on her adoptive mother's property. Between 1903 and 1906, Bell continued to run her farm. In 1907, Guinness employed a single farmhand, Ray LaFere, to help with chores. Around the same time, Guinness inserted the following ad in a matrimonial column of all Chicago daily newspapers and those of other large Midwestern cities. It stated, personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with the view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow the answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Dude, can we put that on my like Bumble and Tinder profiles? Triflers need not apply. Because that's all that is on there is trifling fools. So yeah, triflers need not apply. Several middle-aged men of means responded to Guinness's ad. One of these was John Moe. Shouldn't that be Domo? Okay, never mind. Who arrived from Elmo, Elbow Lake, Minnesota. He brought more than $1,000 with him to pay off her mortgage. Damn, is it that easy? <laughs> so he told neighbors whom Guinness introduced him to as her cousin. He disappeared from her farm within a week. Yeah, because she got him to pay off her mortgage. Good Lord. Next came George Anderson from Tocario, Missouri, who, like Peter Guinness and John Moe, was an immigrant from Norway. During dinner with Anderson, he raised the issue of her mortgage. Anderson agreed that he would pay this off if they decided to wed. Later that night, Anderson awoke to see her standing over him, 
holding a guttering candle in her hand with a strange sinister expression on her face. Without uttering a word, she ran from the room. Anderson fled from the house, soon taking a train to Missouri. The suitors kept coming, but none except for Anderson ever left the farm. By this time, she began ordering huge trunks to be delivered to her home. Hack driver Clyde Sturgis delivered so many trunks to her from Laporte and later remarked how the heavyset woman would lift these enormous trunks like they were bags of marshmallows, tossing them onto her wide shoulders and carrying them into the house. She kept the shutters of her house closed day and night. Farmers traveling past the dwelling at night saw her digging in the hog pen. Ola B. Woodseg, an elderly widower from Iola, Wisconsin, appeared next. He was last seen alive at the Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land, signing over the deed and obtaining several thousand dollars in cash. What is with these fools? Jesus! Old B. Buzerg's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea that their father had gone off to see Guinness. When they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she promptly responded, saying she had never seen their father, even though she <laughs> took possession of his land. Good Lord. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to Guinness's farm throughout 1907. Then, in December 1907, Andrew Helligan, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to her and was warmly received. The pair exchanged many letters, until a letter that overwhelmed Halligillen, written in Guinness's own careful handwriting and dated January 13, 1908. This letter was later found in Halligillen's farm. It read, to the, dearest, to the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person and you and I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Is that a good thing? No, I'm not sure. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned and this is one of the dear children speaks of you or I hear myself humming the words of an old love song it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Mm -hmm. In response to her letter, Heligalin flew to her side in January 1908. He had with him a check for $2,900, all his savings, oh Lord, which he had drawn from the local bank. A few days after Heligalin arrived, he and Guinness appeared at the savings bank in Laporte and deposited the check. Heligalin vanished a few days later, but Guinness appeared at the savings bank to make a $500 deposit and then another one of $700 at a different bank. At this time, she started to have problems with Ray Lamphere, the man who worked on her farm. In March 1908, Guinness sent several letters to a farmer and horse dealer in Topeka, Kansas named Lon Townsend, inviting him to visit her. She decided to put off the visit until spring and thus did not see her before a fire at her farm. Guinness was also in correspondence with the man from Arkansas and sent him a letter dated May 4, 1908. He would have visited her but did not because of the fire at her farm. Guinness allegedly promised marriage to a suitor named Bert Albert. Bert Albert? 
All right. Which did not go through because of his lack of wealth, right? Mm-mm. It's a shame. The hired hand, Ray Lanfair, was deeply in love with Belle. He performed any chore for her, no matter how gruesome. He became jealous of the many men who arrived to court his employer and began making scenes. She fired him on February 3rd, 1908. Shortly after dispensing with Lanfear, she presented herself at Laporte Courthouse. She declared that her former employee was not in his right mind and was a menace to the public. She somehow convinced the authorities to hold a sanity hearing. Lanfear was pronounced sane and released. Guinness was back a few days later to complain to the sheriff that Lanfear had visited her farm and argued with her. She contended he posed a threat to her family and had him arrested for trespassing. Lanfear returned again and again to see her, but she kept driving him away. Lanfear made thinly disguised threats. On more than one occasion, he confided to former William to farmer William Slater, Heligalin won't bother me no more. We fixed him. Heligalin had long since disappeared from the precincts of Laporte, or so it was believed. However, his brother, Asel Heligalin, was disturbed when Andrew failed to return home, and he wrote to Bell, asking her about his siblings' whereabouts. Guinness wrote back, stating Asel Heligalin that his brother was not at her farm and probably went back to Norway. Asel wrote back, saying that he did not believe his brother would do this. Moreover, he believed his brother was still in Laporte, the last place he was ever seen or heard of by anyone. Guinness was brazen about it. She told him that if he wanted to come and look, she would help conduct a search, but she cautioned him that searching for mission persons was expensive. If she were to be involved in such a manhunt, she stated Asol should be prepared to pay her. Really? Wow, she got a nerve. Not a nerve. She got all the nerves. Asol Heligalin did come to Laporte, but not until May. Lanfear represented an unresolved danger. Now Asel Heligalin was making inquiries that could very well send her to hang. She told a lawyer in Laporte, Lelater, -E that she feared for her life and that of her children. Ray Lanfear, she said, had threatened to kill her and burn her house down. She wanted to make out a will in case Lanfear went through with his threats. Lelater complied and drew up the will. She left her entire estate to her children and then departed Lelater's offices. She went to one of the Laporte banks holding the mortgage for her property and paid it off. She did not go to the police or tell them about Lamfer's allegedly life-threatening conduct. The reason for this, most concluded later, is that there were never any threats. She was merely setting the stage so that she could commit arson. Joe Maxson, who had been hired to replace Lamphere in 1908, awoke in the early hours of April 28, 1908, smelling smoke in his room, which was on the second floor of the Guinness house. He opened the hall door to a sheet of flames. Maxson screamed Guinness's name and those of her children, but got no response. He slammed the door and then, in his underwear, leapt from the second story of his room, barely surviving the fire that was closing in. He raced to town to get help. By the time the old-fashioned hook and ladder arrived at the farm at early dawn, the farmhouse was gutted and it was just a heap of smoking ruins. Four bodies were found inside the house. One of the bodies was that of a woman who could not immediately be identified as Guinness since she did not have a head. The head was never found. The bodies of the children were found still in their beds. County Sheriff Smutzer had somehow 
heard about Lamphere's alleged threats. He took one look at the carnage and sought out the handyman. Lelatier came forward and recounted his tale about Guinness's will and how she feared Lamphere would kill her and burn down her house. Lamphere did not help his cause much. The moment Smutzer confronted him and before a word was uttered, Lamphere exclaimed, Did Widow Guinness and the kids get out? He was then told about the fire but denied having anything to do with it, claiming he was not near the farmhouse. A youth, John Solomon, was brought forward. He said he had been watching the Guinness place and he saw Lamphere running down the road before it went up in flames. Lamphere said, You don't, why won't you look me in the eye and say that? Yes, I will. You found me hiding behind the bushes and you told me you killed me if I didn't get out of there. Lamphere was arrested and charged with murder. Then scores of investigators, sheriff's deputies, and coroner's men and volunteers begin to search the ruins. The body of the headless woman was of deep concern. C. Christofferson, a neighboring farmer, took one look at the charred remains and said it was not Belle Guinness. So did another farmer, L. Nicholson, and so did Mrs. Austin Cutler, an old friend of Guinness. More of Guinness's friends, Mrs. May Oleander and Sigward Olson, arrived from Chicago. They examined the remains and said it was not Guinness. Doctors then measured the remains and, making allowances for missing neck and head, stated the woman, saying that the corpse was that of a woman who was 5 feet 3 inches and weighed no more than 150 pounds. Friends and neighbors, as well as Laporte Clothiers, who made her dresses and other garments, swore that Guinness was 5'8 and weighed between 180 and 200 pounds. Detailed measurements of the body were compared to those on file with several Laporte stores where she purchased her clothes. Then two sets of measurements were compared. The authorities concluded that the headless woman could not possibly have been Belle Guinness, even when the ravages of the fire on the body were taken into account. Moreover, Dr. J. Myers examined the internal organs of the dead woman. He sent stomach contents to a pathologist in Chicago who reported months later the organs contained lethal doses of strychnine. Guinness's dentist, Dr. Irma P. Norton, said that if the teeth dental work of the headless corpse had been located, he could definitely ascertain if it was she. Thus, Louis Klondike Schultz, a former miner, was hired to build a sluice and begin sifting through debris. Just as more bodies began being unearthed, the sleuth was used to isolate human remains on a larger scale. May 19, 1908, a piece of bridge work was found consisting of two human canine teeth, their roots still attached, porcelain teeth, and gold crown work. Norton identified them as work he had done for Guinness. As a result, Charles Mack officially concluded the adult female was Belle Guinness. Assel Heligen arrived in Laporte and told Sheriff Smutzer that he believed his brother had met with foul play in Guinness's hands. Then Joe Maxson came forward with information that could not be ignored. He told the sheriff that Guinness had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Maxson said there were many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled in holes, Guinness had told Maxson, contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. Smutzer took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig. And on May 3, 1908, the diggers unearthed the body of Jenny Olson. They then found the small bodies of two unidentified children. The body of Andrew Heligalin was unearthed. His overcoat was found to have been worn by Lamphere. As days progressed and the gruesome work continued, one body after another was discovered in the hog bin. Old B. Buddhistburg of Iola, Wisconsin, 
Thomas Lindebow, who had left Chicago and gone to work as a hired man for Guinness three years earlier. Henry Goldeholt of Scandinavia, Wisconsin, who had gone to wed her a year earlier, taking $1,500 to her. A watch corresponding to one belonging to Gerholt was found with the body. Olaf Findenhard from Chicago. John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. His watch was found in Lampier's possession. Olaf Lindblom age 35 from wisconsin reports of other possible victims also began to come in william mingai a coachman from new york city who had left um april 1st 1904 herman konitzer of chicago who disappeared in january 1906 charles edmund of new carlisle indiana george berry of tuscola illinois Kirsty Halkvin of Devere, Barron County, Wisconsin, who sold his farm to come to see her. Charles Newberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who came, who lived in Philadelphia and told friends he was coming to see Guinness in June 1906 and never made it back. He brought $500 with him. John H. Majunkin of Coropolis near Pittsburgh left his wife in 1906 after corresponding with a Laporte woman. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant of Carroll, Indiana, wrote his relatives in 1906 he was going to marry a wealthy widow. Henry Bisk of Laporte, who disappeared in 1906. His hired man, Edward Canary of Pink Lake, who also vanished. Bert Chase of Mishwaka, Indiana, sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow he was going to go see. His brother received a telegram from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother investigated and found that that telegram was fake. Tonus Peterson of Rushford, Minnesota is alleged to have disappeared April 2nd, 1907. A gold ring marched SB May 28, 1907 was found in the ruins. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois is alleged to have gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children. T.J. Teofield of Minneapolis is alleged to have come to see Guinness in 1907. Frank Redinger, a farmer from Wakushka, when Wisconsin came to Indiana in 1907 to get married and never return. Emil Teal, a Swede from Kansas City, Missouri, is alleged to have gone in 1907 to Laporte. Lee Porter of Bartonville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother he was coming to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Johnny Hunter left Duquesne, Pennsylvania, November 25, 1907, after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in North Indiana. Jesus Christ. Two other Pennsylvanians, George Williams of Wapawapo, I butchered that, Wapawalopin and Ludwig Stoll of Mount Yeager also left their homes to marry a wealthy widow. Abraham Phillips, a railway man of Burlington, West Virginia, left the winter of 1907 to go to northern Indiana and marry a rich widow. A railway watch was found in the debris. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois, was last seen by his wife in 1907 while telling her he was going to the port to secure an investment with a rich widow. He had $1,000 from an insurance company and borrowed from several investors. In June 1908, his widow was able to identify his remains from Laporte's Popper Cemetery by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. Oh, Jesus, that's awful. I'm not even close to done. Og Gunderson of Green Lake, Wisconsin. Ole Olson of Battle Creek, Michigan. Linder Nicholson of Huron Lake, North Dakota, South Dakota, excuse me. 
Andrew Anderson of Lawrence, Kansas, Johan Sorensen of St. Joseph, Missouri. A possible victim was a man named Hinckley. Reported unnamed victims were a daughter of Mrs. H. Witzer of Toledo, Ohio, who had attended Indiana University near LaPorte. An unknown man and women who were alleged to have disappeared in September 1906, the same night Jenny Olson went missing. Guinness claimed they were a Los Angeles professor and his wife, a brother of Miss Jenny Graham of Wakushka, Wisconsin, who had left her to marry a rich widow, a hired man from Ohio, age 50, name unknown, who's alleged to have disappeared, and Guinness to become the heir to his horse and buggy empire, an unnamed man from Montana who told people at a resort he was going to sell Guinness's horse and buggy, which were found with several other horses and buggies at the farm. Most of the remains on the property could not be identified. Because of the recovery methods, the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Guinness Farms is unknown, but it is believed to be about 12. On May 19, 1908, the remains of approximately seven unknown victims were buried in two coffins in unmarked graves in the pauper section of Laporte's Pine Lake Cemetery. Andrew Helligan and Jeannie Olson were buried in Laporte's Patton Cemetery near Peter Guinness. Ray Lamphere was arrested on May 22, 1908 and tried for murder and arson. He denied the charges of arson and murder were filed, that were filed against him. His defense hinged on the assertion that the body was not Guinness. Lamphere's lawyer, Wirt Warden, de developed evidence that contradicted Norton's identification of the teeth and bridge work. A local junior testified that the gold in the bridge work had emerged from the fire almost undamaged. The fierce heat of conflagration had melted the gold plating on several watches and items of gold jewelry. Local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridge work to a human jawbone and placing it at a blacksmith's forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated. The porcelain teeth came out pocked and pitted with gold parts rather melted. Both the artificial elements were damaged, but to a greater degree than those in the bridge work offered as evidence of Guinness's identity. The hired hand, Joe Maxson, and another man also testified that they'd see Klondike Schultz take bridge work out of his pocket and plant it just before it was discovered. Lantfear was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of murder. On November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in the state prison. He died of tuberculosis on December 3, 1909. On January 14, 1910, the Reverend E. A. Shell came forward with a confession that Lamphere was said to have set made to him while the clergyman was com comforting the dying man. In it, Lamphere revealed Guinness's crimes and swore that she was still alive. Lamphere had stated to the Reverend Shell and to a fellow convict, Harry Meyer, shortly before his death, that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Guinness bury many of her victims. When a victim arrived, she made them comfortable. She made them comfortable, charmed them, cooking a very large meal. She then drugged their coffee, and when the man was in the stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. Sometimes she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed, then enter the room by candlelight and chloroform them while they were sleeping. A powerful woman, Guinness would then carry the body to the basement, place it on the table, and dissect. She would then bundle the remains and bury them in a hog pen in the grounds around the house. Belle had become an expert at dissection thanks to the instruction she received from her husband, the butcher. <gasps> Excuse me. I told you. I told you. Working at a butcher shop is not a good look. Whenever you, you know, it's like a Chekhov's gun of serial killing. Whenever I'm about to tell you a story about a murderer and they work at a butcher shop, not a good look. 
To save time, she sometimes poisoned her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping a corpse into the hog scalding vat and covering the remains with quicklime. Lanfear even seemed that if Belle was overly tired after murdering a victim, she merely chopped up the remains and in the middle of the night, stepped into her hog pen and fed them to the hogs. Ugh. The handyman also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the smoking ruins of Guinness's home. Guinness had lured a woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper only days before she decided to escape from the port. Guinness, according to Lamphere, had drugged the woman, then bashed her head in and decapitated her, which had weights, the body had weights tied to it, and they tried to take it to a swamp where she originally threw it into the deep water. Then she chloroformed the woman's children, smothered them to death, and dragged their small bodies to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing and removed their false teeth, placing it beside the headless corpse to assure that it would be identified as herself. She then torched the house and fled. Lamphere had helped her, he admitted, but he, she had not left by the road where he awaited for her after the fire. She had betrayed her one-time partner in crime and in the end by cutting across the open field and disappearing into the woods. Some accounts suggest that Lamphere admitted that he took her to Steelwell, a town about nine, nine miles away, and saw her off on a train. Lamphere has said that Guinness was a rich woman and that she had murdered 42 men by his count, perhaps more, and taken amounts ranging from 1000 to 32000 She had allegedly accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the year. That's a huge fortune during that time, adjusted for inflation, that's $6.3 million. She had a small amount remaining in one of her savings accounts, but local banks later admitted she had indeed withdrawn most of her funds shortly before the fire. The fact that Guinness withdrew most of her money suggested she was planning on evading the law. Guinness was, for several decades, allegedly seen or cited in cities and towns throughout the United States. Friends, acquaintances, and amateur detectives apparently spotted her on the streets of Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles as late as 1931. Guinness was reported alive and living in a Mississippi town where she supposedly owned a great deal of property and lived the life of a miser. For more than 20 years, she received people. Smutzer, the head investigator for more than 20 years, received an average report twice a month. She became part of American criminal folklore, a female bluebeard. Bodies of Guinness's three children were found in the home's wreckage, but the headless adult female corpse found with them was never positively identified. Guinness's true fate is unknown. The Port residents are divided between believing that she was killed by Lamphere and that she faked her own death. In 1931, a woman known as Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom for money. Two people who had known Guinness claimed to recognize her from photographs, but the identification was never proven. Carlson died while awaiting trial. The body believed to be that of Belle Guinness was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. On November 5, 2007, with the permission of the descendants of Belle's sister, the headless body was exhumed from Forest Grave um, Cemetery by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to learn her true identity. It was initially hoped that a sealed envelope flap on a letter found at the victim's file would contain enough DNA to be compared to the body. Unfortunately, there was not enough DNA, so efforts continue to find a reliable source to compare 
to properly identify the body. So that was the case of Belle Guinness, the worst female serial killer in American history. Now, if you join me next time, we are going to look into the story of the first Dr. Death. You may know Christopher Dunch is happening, the story of him on Peacock Network. But before Christopher Dunch, there was Schwango. And he is far worse and far more horrific. So I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.